Welcome, everybody. Welcome, old faces. Welcome, young faces. Welcome, uh, tired faces. <laughs> Welcome, new faces. Um, really glad to see each one of you guys here. And um, we are, if you haven't been with us, we're in a series called Love or Die. And our die sign has seen better days, but I guess that's just how it goes. It used to have some sticks on it, which is fun. So um, just starting off today, I don't know if y'all have noticed, but our culture has become somewhat obsessed with authenticity. We are obsessed with being authentic and, you might hear, true to ourselves. I know I hear some music from going from somewhere. <laughs> Is everything off? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can, I can listen to Phil while I, while I preach. <laughs> Phil, look him there. Um, so yeah, our culture is somewhat obsessed with authenticity. So I, I took a picture of this, this was a little while ago, be fearlessly authentic. Have you guys heard messages like this? And heard this just general, forceful, be true to yourself kind of thing. And I think it's being presented in our culture as the secret to happiness in a lot of ways. Like, if you are true to yourself, then, kind of the fill in the blank there is, then you'll be truly happy. And if you're not truly happy, maybe it's because you're not being truly authentic. You're not being true to yourself. Um, I think that that's behind a lot of what we see today in the, I might call it the gender craze of just this massive question of, okay, who am I sexually? And it might be a man or a woman or somewhere in this vast spectrum in between. And I have to figure this out. I have to search within myself figure out what I am, and then find a way to express that physically. But at the, at the core of that is this drive to be true to yourself and to be authentic. That's, that's what's driving people to make these crazy changes to their bodies to align with what they see is true in, inside of themselves, or at least what they perceive to be true inside of themselves. Um, we can point easily at something like that. But I think it also has influenced us, maybe in ways we don't recognize, in just the way we think. Um, for example, the way you might think about the career you want to pursue, you might think, okay, um, well, what am I good at? What, what am I destined to do? What, what is the one thing that I can contribute that no one else can in the world? That's how I used to think about it. What is it that God has given me that only I can do and that I can do better than anybody and I'm going to contribute something unique and special to the world. I'm going to have to dig down deep and see what this core of myself is, and then I'm going to choose a major. And no wonder we're kind of crippled in choosing majors and we switch back and forth because we think, oh, it has to be true with who I am, right? If I choose the wrong major, I'm not being authentic to who I am. And what if I spend my whole life doing this when I was meant to do that? I've wasted my life on the wrong career, so I can't mess up my choice of career. Some of you guys were like, I knew I was going to be an engineer from the time I was four years old. You know, raise your hand if that was you. There's a few of you guys in the room, okay? <laughs> well, congratulations, all right? Raise your hand if you were like me and you're like, I've changed my major like four times or more. All right, yeah, there's a few of us in the room. And most of you are somewhere in between there. But um, there's this pressure to, to align your entire life with some internal reality and, and a fear that if you get it wrong, you'll mess up your whole life. Uh, but then it's also, we'll see it in smaller and silly things too. I thought one of the more funny examples that was brought up to me um, through a book actually was dancing, all right? Dancing used to be a community event, and it was all about doing it together, right? And now, dancing is all about doing your own thing, all right? We, we don't dance with people so much as we now dance at people. You know what I'm talking about? Like... <laughs> That certainly describes, unfortunately, the way that I dance. Um, some of you have witnessed that. I think we, we did a little bit of dancing at our, th you know, our friend's giving, which was a blast. And actually, the most fun thing was when we did a line dance, which is actually not quite dancing at each other, which is good, I think. Um, but we just feel this need to express ourselves and as if that is going to be the fulfillment of who we are and, and therefore give us the fulfillment of our lives, satisfaction. And I think that we can point to some good and we can point to some bad in this, okay? First of all, I think it's misguided because it is seeing the human heart as the compass. And it's saying, I'm going to look down into my heart 
whatever it says, whatever direction it's pointing, that's where I've got to go. And if my whole life doesn't conform to what's in the deepest part of my heart, then something's wrong. Well, we know that that's problematic, biblically speaking, because our hearts are corrupted and our hearts are deceitful. So that's problematic. But then I want to point to something that's actually good about this authenticity. I think that we have a longing, and I would argue even a God-given longing, for consistency and integrity. We want our lives to be aligned so that what we say we do, we actually do. And so what we desire is what we actually get. And, and so that, that every piece of us from the inside out is directed toward one end, and only one end, and, and it's actually consistent in that sense. So in that sense, we, I think there's a good piece of wanting to be authentic. We don't want to do something that we don't really want to do and have this conflict, right? And that's not always a bad thing to desire. I actually noticed it even just now. You know, worship, when I say worship, I mean in this, you know, we, we're singing together. Um, it's always a funny thing, depending on the context you're in, you know, like, do I raise my hands or not? Well, what's the most authentic thing to do, right? Am I, am I feeling it enough to raise my hands? When, am I, when is that feeling enough that this is an authentic thing to do and not a phony thing to do? Have you ever had that thought, you know? Am I doing this because everyone else around me is doing it? Am I not doing it because no one else is doing it? You know? I mean, those, these are the questions that are going through our minds. I, I would just argue that's a question of, am I being true? Am I being consistent? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think we were designed to be authentic, to be internally consistent. And I'm going to argue as we go through this series on love that um, we were designed to be authentically in love with God. And I'm going to explain that, all right? But I think that we were designed to be authentically, wholeheartedly, consistently in love with God and loving Him. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 6, and uh, that's where we're going to, to be, to find ourselves. And this is going to be a familiar, there going to be familiar words, probably to, to all of you, um, if, if not most of you, and uh, for good reason. Uh, well, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself. So first, a little review for those of you who, um, well, for everybody, whether you're here or not. As I said, we've been going through this series, Love or Die, and our first, uh, really our first two weeks were focused on 1 Corinthians 14, 13, excuse me, 13, and we were going through, okay, first of all, we established that love is essential. We can, if we do anything without love, it's totally useless. And so I was just trying to make an argument. This is worth studying. This is worth pursuing. We need to know what we're talking about. Not only talking about, we need to know what love is. If we don't really know what love is, then we can't be confident that what we're doing has any lasting value. Love is essential. And then we also moved from that and said, love starts with God. It comes from God. That was last week. And and so if we want to know what love is, we have to start by looking at God and especially looking at God in Jesus Christ. This is how we know love. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to die for us. That's how we know what love is. So love is essential and love starts with God. And so if those were the first two things that we, that we kind of reviewed, then, okay, here's God, here's us. All right, it's a little small. I was, I, was, I was told I need to draw bigger so that the people in the back can uh, see. God, us. All right, can everybody see that? Nice, okay. So I was kind of, last week we were thinking about God's love for us. This week I kind of wanted to ask the question, okay, in what sense are we to love God? And how does that factor into this equation? I think it factors in very importantly, and I think this is going to point it out to you, and maybe you would have gone here. Um, but in what sense are we to love God? And again, I would argue that you were designed to love God authentically, in the sense of consistently, and wholeheartedly, totally. All right, let's read Deuteronomy here. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, this is verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. A little context of these words I like to think of Deuteronomy. Well, first of all, who's the speaker here? Does anybody know? Who's speaking? Who's giving this command to Israel? Moses, yes. Moses. You guys familiar with who Moses is? Moses is the guy with all the plagues in Prince of Egypt. You guys have seen that movie at least. Hopefully you've actually read the biblical account because the movie is, you know, amazing but not entirely accurate. Let's just say I know, sorry, Ben, <laughs> bursting your bubble. So I like to think of the book of Deuteronomy as Moses' pre-game pep talk, okay? The game is, the game, Israel about to conquer the promised land and take it in its entirety. Well, not entirely its entirety, but they're going to take it, okay? And Moses is giving them a pep talk on the plains of Moab right outside Okay, before they cross the Jordan into the promised land, he's giving them this pep talk. He's saying, okay, you're about to do this. I'm about to die because God told me I can't go because of your disobedience. He points it out like multiple times. He's like, this is, you guys have been really disobedient. His main point is not, here's what to do to win in your game. His main point is, this is what I want you to remember after you have won. His main concern is not, here's our strategy to destroy all these Canaanites. His main point is, you are going to win, and once you get over there, you're going to forget everything. You're going to forget how good God was to you. You're going to forget that he was the one who gave you the land. You're going to forget that you guys are nothing. You guys are going to forget that you were nothing and you will become nothing. And when that happens, you're going to forget God and you're going to go after other gods. And so I'm, I'm telling you this today so you can choose this day who you follow. That's the, the pregame pep talk that he gives in Deuteronomy. And this becomes essentially the summary statement of what he's calling Israel to do. And we know it's a summary statement because in the New Testament, when Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment, the greatest commandment, what does he say? Anybody? What was that, Andrea? Yeah, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Well, I don't know if you knew, but he was quoting this text. He was quoting Moses. He wasn't making this up. He was saying, well, when Moses said this, this was actually the, basically the sum total of, of the law and the prophets. And, this, all, and the, this is the sum of all the law and the prophets. If you do these things, if you actually did this and love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus, if you do those two, you've fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus says. And so we can come to this and say, okay, what is Moses getting at, and why is this so essential, so bottomlessly important? So, moving into it, we start out with this incredible statement. It's known as the Shema, especially among Jewish circles, because of this first word, Shema, here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this phrase is actually really perplexing, I'll say, because in Hebrew there's no verb, all right? So you can get rid of this is. Now it's not to say that there's not an implied verb, which is why it's, it's fair to put one in there, but what it's saying is the Lord, our God, the Lord, one. That's kind of how it reads. And so there's a lot of different ways you could read that. You could say, um, the Lord, our God, one is the Lord. Or you could say, the Lord is our God. Or you could say, our God is the Lord. You could put a bunch of is's in there, okay? Um, there's really two main, and I want to draw this out a little bit with you. Uh, there's a little bit of, I'll say, uh, different opinions on this word one, okay? And how we should interpret it. Because, and this is important. The way that we interpret this will lead to what we think it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. 
because this is, this is kind of the foundation. Foundation. Can you guys read that? Kind of. This is kind of the foundation of the command. So it's important to understand, why does he stack these like this? Okay? There's two, there's two ways of thinking about it. One is to say, as it's written here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the other one is to say, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. In other words, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. He alone is God. And those are both very legitimate linguistically ways of saying it, actually. Okay? And I think that they actually come out to about, about the same. Um, if it's one, I believe what it's referring to is the internal consistency of God. That is, he is undivided. And actually, theologians use a fun term called simplicity. All right? And that basically means that if you were to, um, you know, if, if, excuse the expression, if God was an egg and you cracked him open and he dropped into a frying pan, you would not see an egg white and an egg yolk. Okay? He's not compartmentalized into different pieces that you can pull apart and study different pieces of him, all right? And so that's why when you hear, the Trinity is like an egg, that's where I'm getting this egg. <laughs> the Trinity is like an egg, you know, like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, like the egg yolk, and the egg white, and the egg shell. But it's one egg. It's ter- it's, okay, it's not the worst, but it's not a very good analogy, because it misses the point that each one of those persons is actually entirely the essence of God, and the essence of God is undivided. It's one, it's one thing. He's internally consistent. Now, another thing that this means, though, is that he does not have, he's not divided in the sense that we are. We just talked about, this is why I introduced it as authentic, right? He doesn't say one thing and do another thing. He doesn't want one thing and then get pressured into doing something different than that thing. He's, he's never going to be inconsistent in that sense. He is entirely faithful to who he is all the way. He's undivided. He's singular in that sense. He's one. Which I think is important when we get into you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might because he's contrasting this with how we tend to love which is in all sorts of different directions and not with our entire person. With divided affection. Trying to divide up our, 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 ourselves into loving in this sense but not this sense. Now, the other way to take it would be to say that the Lord, you should serve the Lord our God, the Lord alone. I'm like 45% on alone and 55% on the first one, okay? So I think, I think it's more like he's internally consistent, he is one. Um, but if you, if you went with alone, it still makes the same point, which is you are to serve God only and nothing else, okay? So either way, the driving force of it is you are to use your entire life to serve, to love God. You were meant to love God with everything. So let's, let's go over these, these three, heart, soul, and might, okay? So the first one, heart, I'm going to draw really big, which doesn't matter because you can't read my handwriting, but okay, heart is like, okay, now we think of heart as like our feeler, okay? And that is true, but in the Bible, it's more than that. It's more like the control center, okay? So it's not just what you feel, but it's also what you think. It's, it's what you feel, it's what you think, and it's ultimately what you choose. All of those are included in this control center called the heart, all right? So don't just think emotion, think control center. It's the cockpit of the human life. Now, this second... Uh, word is soul. And this kind of translates to, uh, it actually comes from the breath of life. So when God breathes into Adam, he breathes into him, he becomes a living nephesh, a living thing with breath. And uh, because of breath, it, it's also associated with the neck. But then beyond that, it can just mean life in general. And so I think most people would agree that here it's just referring to your, your whole life. So if, if heart is kind of the, the center of the person, then soul is just kind of zooming out. They overlap. It's not like these are two different compartments of a human. 
It's more like these are overlapping ideas of a person, and they're starting to zoom out a little bit. So your, your control center, and then, your, then your, you as a whole person, and then this last one, might, is interesting because this word almost always is just translated as very, ma'od, is just very, exceedingly. And so uh, while it could mean something like your physical strength, it seems to mean more than that. It's like the, everything else, the, the rest that you might have influence over, the rest that you might have access to, your resources. A lot of people would, would, would throw your finances in there or your influence. Everything about your life is in this ma'od, might category, okay? And so I would just, I would add another circle and say, okay, so I, I think what Moses is doing, he's not, he's not trying to say, okay, like this part of your life and this part of your life and this part of life, you should love God with all of those. No, he's saying, Okay, the very, from the very center of you to the very furthest reach of your influence should love God all the way, without exception. It made me think of that old worship song, uh, From the Inside Out. Did you guys ever sing that song, or is that just my generation? You know, Hillsong? Um, okay, a, a couple of people. So many people just like, were like, oh, I don't know. I was like, oh, no. From the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's about it. Okay. So, from the inside out is, is the cry of, you know, the cry of my heart is to bring you praise or something like that. I think it's getting at this reality that we were meant to love God from the in, inside out. Um, that is, from the very innermost part of our being to the very furthest reach of our influence, everything that we have control over, everything that we feel, everything that motivates us, everything that we think, but then also everything that we do, everyone that we can possibly talk to and influence, every, everything that we can choose to use for God's glory, everything from our time to our finances, everything. I think, I think that's Moses' point here. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. I think that's the point. So everything. And I, I just want to note a couple of these things because this should influence how we think about love. If we're being commanded to love in all these ways, then that actually means something about the nature of love, which I have been fascinated with. The more that I study love, the more I'm like, this is bottomless. This is incredible, and it's not that easy to nail down. But I can make these observations, okay? Especially coming from, okay, you should love with all your heart. I, I'm going to say it like this. It's going to include emotion. It's going to include volition. These just happen to rhyme, I swear. And it's going to include motivation. All of these are included in this wholehearted love of God, okay? So that means emotion is included. What we feel should love God. I now, I hear a lot these days, which is not a bad em emphasis at all, but that love is a choice. How many of you guys have heard that um, at some point? We need to hear that um, because choosing to love someone is a huge part of love, especially for sinful creatures. So sometimes we choose to love when we don't feel like it. And I say, amen, good, we should do that. If we don't feel love, we should at least act on it, right? If we know it's what's right. But that's not to say that love shouldn't also involve affection. That we should also feel affection. And that this just goes back to the idea of, you know, it doesn't mean much to my wife if I, if I tell her, I love you. I choose to love you. I don't really like you, nor do I have any affection for you, but I choose to do what's best for you. Don't you love me back, but don't actually like me. You know, it's like, it, it kind of misses, I mean, we, we all intuitively know that when love is at its fullest, and it, then that includes some level of, of emotion too. And that's okay. In fact, that's good. That's God-given. And I think it's the same when, when God has compassion for us. It's not just he just kind of 
chooses what's best for us, but not because he actually has any affection or care for us. No, he, he feels it too. So it, it includes emotion. But then we have to be balanced here. It's not just emotion. It's not just I want to get a, an emotional high from this thing, so I, I love you because you give me an emotional high or you make me feel good. Obviously, our culture goes way that direction. And uh, you can end up loving a, a chair if it makes you feel good. And that's, it's just like, sorry, it's kind of a weird analogy. But, but that's the problem with it. It's like, that's the, you don't understand what love is. Volition meaning it's also what we choose. And this is just abundantly clear in Scripture that when God says he loves us, it says God so loved the, the world that he gave his only son. His, his love included the action of giving something. Right? That was a part of his love. I like to think that in some ways that was the consummation of his love, like, like the fulfillment of it. Like he, he had this desire to do something and a desire for us, and then it was his joy and a piece of his love to actually do it. That's a piece of love. If, if you're missing that, doing something for the beloved, then, then you're not, you don't have a full-orbed understanding of love. And then I also think it's just worth mentioning that this includes our motivations. So this is what we desire. So what we feel, what we choose, what we desire or want. Now this is the hardest one. You, it's really hard to make yourself want something if you don't already want it. But what I think what this is saying is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You should desire him with everything. And you should pursue him with everything. You should give everything for him. This is what you were created to do. You've probably heard, you know, the chief end of man is to, anybody finish it? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's the Westminster Catechism, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think you could summarize that by saying the chief end of man is to love God. That's what this is saying. The great commandment is to love God. This is what you were designed to do. You were designed to love him like this, wholeheartedly, authentically, with integrity. Uh, just as an illustration of just how this, these things should all work together, I was thinking about, like, if we went to Adam and Eve before the fall, and we were, and we were to say something like, um, love is a choice, not an emotion. I think they would look at you like you had three heads. They'd be like, what? Love is a choice, not an emotion. How could you possibly separate the two? Like, how could, you, how could anyone say that love was just an emotion? But also, how could you possibly say that love was only a choice and that there was no emotion involved? And likewise, if, if someone came up to Adam or Eve again before the fall and they'd experienced this, the love of God and the love between, you know, between each other, and they said, I love you, and then they did something that clearly showed that they did, they did not care about them or did, did not seek their good, they would say, what? That doesn't make any sense. What did you mean by I love you? So there's just this internal integrity to it, authenticity to it. So we were designed to love God without any internal conflict. We were designed to love God without doubt. We were designed to love God without mixed motivations or distorted desires competing. We were designed to love God without half-hearted service. So, and then to say that in the inverse, we were rather designed to love God with full confidence for the right reasons, with zeal, with fire, hot desire. We were to love God joyfully with unquestioning service and allegiance. That's what you were, that's what you were created for. To be authentically in love with God. That's what I mean by that. 
consistently, fully in love with God. As I was just thinking about teaching this passage, I almost hesitated because it occurred to me that it might, what I didn't want to do was come here and say, you guys stink at loving. You better start loving better. Look at what you're supposed to do. All right, raise your hand if you're doing it, right? Raise your hand if you've, if you've fulfilled this or if by next week you think you're going you're gonna to hit the mark, right? If we, if we understand this, then I could yell at you guys for the rest of my life and, and, and it wouldn't necessarily do you guys any good for me just to say, keep trying harder to love with everything. And, and, and what I realized, and I broke into tears when I realized this, tears of just gratitude, is that we don't have to measure up to this. This is no longer a standard that we have to measure up to. Right? I'm not standing up here saying, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Instead, I get to say, if you love Jesus, you will. Right? And you've begun. But you don't have to. <laughs> right? That's the gospel. And that was just a glorious truth. And, and just to... to Nail that in. I want you to turn now to Galatians 3.10. So I think this is just a valuable moment for us to remind ourselves of what the gospel teaches. So Galatians 3.10. Many of you know Galatians was a letter written by Paul to combat a false teaching that said you can obtain salvation by doing good stuff, essentially, by works of the law. And he wrote this entire letter to prove them wrong. And this is what he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I'm just going to pause there to say, in other words, that last phrase, the one who does them shall live by them. What that means is, if you do it, if you do the law, then you get to live. It's about adherence to the law, which is why he's saying it's not of faith. Faith is something different. God offers life not through the law, but through faith. That was true in the time of Moses, and that's true now. But these people had flipped it on its head and made the law about obtaining life. And he was saying, no, it can't be done. The law was given. Later on, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go down there. It said, this is verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And in another place, Paul describes the law as our teacher. It was meant to teach us many things, and it still does. And so when we look at the law, we just have to remember that it says, Hear, O Israel. And when it's saying that, we have to remember, okay, not everything in the Old Testament just is a blanket application to us. Even the great commandment. We can't just, just copy-paste it and say, this is written to me, and so everything that it says is just, it goes. Now, I think... If we understand it rightly, there is a way that we apply this to ourselves. Absolutely. And I'm saying that still describes your chief end. It still describes what God calls you to, what he created you for, and what he's going to ultimately do in you. But we have to remember that it is a part of the law. In fact, it is the summary statement of the law. And so this applies, which is, it's not if you do it, you live. No, it's this is what you can't do, but this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did, so that you don't have to do it in the sense of you have to fulfill this. You can't fulfill this. You know you can't fulfill this. Praise God that we don't have to do this. Because <laughs> if, if we have to do this, if we have to do 
loving the Lord our God in the way that I just described, then we are all hopeless. Can I get an amen? But this is the beauty of it. I'm going to describe it like this. Um, we didn't and we can't. Love God, we didn't and we can't. He can, he did, and now we don't have to, but now we get to. Now, it was a little while ago, but we went over this thing called the three circles, and I'm just going to go over this using the three circles, just because I think it'll, it'll kind of clarify what I mean by this. This is how it works. There's, <laughs> I was thinking about last week was the cup week, and this week is the circle week. We have a lot of circles, all right? So enjoy the circles, and here's our little diagram for what I mean by wholehearted love for God, authentic love for God, right? And on this, in this first circle, this is God's design, and it represents what God intended when he designed us, and his design was for us to be in perfect community and fellowship with him, and that meant that everything about us was perfectly aligned to love God. That's what you were designed for. That's what I was designed for. And then, this little arrow is sin. We choose rebellion. And then that gets us to a place of brokenness. And if we have these same little uh, the diagram, now everything's all catawampus. It's a great word, isn't it? Right? Your, your desires and your emotions, your thoughts and your actions, and nothing, nothing is aligned like it should. Nothing's calibrated. It's going every which direction. Your heart is, is causing you to follow after all kinds of idols. It's an idol factory. And the thing that you think will bring you fulfillment is going to bring you nothing but death. But you're chasing after all these things to try and fix what you know is broken about yourself. And so our culture is saying, go deep, 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 deep down. And then whatever you find if you follow it all the way out, it'll lead you to life. Wrong. Because your heart is a terrible compass. It's going to lead you to death, even if you're 100% consistent. And so we need something else. We need someone to fix us at our deepest level. But we also need someone to pay the price for our rebellion. And so that's where the gospel comes in, if we repent and believe, that's where redemption begins. And I'm going to put a little mini thing here. Jesus actually did it. Jesus actually lived this way. Jesus actually loved God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his might. From his deepest inward thought to the deepest desire of his heart, to every single emotion he felt, to every thought that went through his head, to every action he chose to do and then went through with, including his death on the cross, he loved God with everything. And so he fulfilled the law. Praise God. And what that allows for us, by him doing that, and him securing our redemption, now we get to recover and pursue God's design. We get to recover and pursue this again, not as a qualification, but as an invitation, right? No longer do we have to do this so that we can be with God. Now it's because of what God has done, you get to pursue what you were actually created to do. You get to, to, to try to recover it with God's help. You get to set broken bones 
and, and, and align yourself again so that you begin to run in the direction that you were created to run. Which is just incredible that we get the opportunity to do that. And this is the thing that made me break down into tears because it's just so beautiful. It's so beautiful that we get the grace of God so that it's not like this, this, this command that causes despair because we know we can't do it. Rather, we constantly remind ourselves that because God did it, now it's just an invitation to pursue him and to, and to live to the full again. And so, um, I want you to turn really quick to 1 Peter 1.8. And I want to make just one more point, and that is that Scripture speaks of Christians in an amazing way. And that is that when it speaks of someone that, they are, that there's confidence that, there is, that they are believers, it, doesn't, it, the, it, it changes from being an imperative love God to being an assumption you do love God. And it's pointing to the fact that when you become a believer, something changes in your heart, and God actually gives you love for him. And so I can say with confidence that every person in this room who has actually believed in God has love for God already in their heart, because it's a gift. It's a gift from him. And so if you go to 1 Peter 1, 8, actually, I'll just let you guys turn there, um, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Paul is just, he's saying, you do. You love him. I know it. Paul's looking at their lives and he says, I know from the evidence that you are truly saved. And I'm going to say, you love him. It's beautiful. And then here's just one more scripture, 1 John 4, 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, only Christians can truly love in this sense. And they can because this happens when you are born again. God gives you this love. And so, in diagram form, here's you. And now, at the very center of you, in your heart, a seed has been planted of love for God. Now, it's not, it's not fully grown. None of us can say that it has captured every part of our life and brought it into conformity and unity, and, and, and singularity of direction yet. But what's beautiful is that it's there. It's there. If you're a believer, you love him. And so the question isn't, how do I start to love God? It's how do you encourage that love to take over? How do you encourage that love, like a, if it's a small seed or a small seedling plant, how do you encourage it to let it grow until it just takes over everything and rearranges everything so that everything is brought back to what it was supposed to be. I like the analogy of a solar system. It will go, if you take the sun out of the solar system, everything flies apart. But if you put that sun back in the center, everything can come back together and be put back where it was meant to be. And that's what God is meant to be as the center of our lives. And so uh, I don't know how many of you were there this morning, but I love the picture of Jesus. I was, I was getting chills this morning as... as Pastor Davey described Jesus in the temple and his holy wrath as he cleansed it and he turned over tables and he said, you've made my house a den of robbers. And I think in a very real sense, we are to let that love, that, he, that seed that he has planted in our hearts, ransack our lives and, and clean them out right? Let him go through your house, so to speak, and, and tear it up. Let love totally change every piece of your life. This should, your life was meant to be this, and right now it's kind of, it's all over the place, if you're anything like me. And so one more, one more passage I want to go to, and that's Romans 12, verse 9. We were at CrossCon, and I was just studying different passages on love in preparation for this series, and I noticed something, okay? 
Uh, and I had to check with our, my, my old Greek professor, Dr. Smith. I emailed him because I was like, can, it, can this possibly be true? I think I just found something that changes everything about this passage. Like this was, we read this passage at our wedding. And I was looking at it and I was like, I think this is, this is changing everything. Am I, is this possibly true? And he was like, yep, looks good. You're right. I was like, okay, are you guys, are you guys ready? Here's what it is. Let love be genuine is the sentence, okay? And then after that, all of these are participles. Isn't that amazing? I'm just kidding. Okay, so what that means, <laughs> what that means is that the next, I think it's at least three verses, I think through verse 13, explain what Paul means by that first phrase. So he says, let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. You see what I'm saying? So what, what blew my mind was, if I'm studying love, this is like another 1 Corinthians 13. This is another passage where Paul says, this is what it means to love. And what is he, he says, let love be genuine. That means without hypocrisy. Internally consistent, authentic. What does it mean? Well, it means that the love is going to start controlling every aspect of your life. It controls what you love. Abhor what is evil. You hate what's evil and you love what's good. Hold fast to what's good. Then it, 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 it controls how you treat other people. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. But it also controls your emotions. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is all describing what true love looks like, how it, how it acts, how it feels, what it loves, what it clings to. It's so beautiful. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. These are both, both the fruit and just the, the actions of, of someone who loves. And so my encouragement to you is let love ruthlessly ransack your life and reorient it until you look more like what you were meant to be from the beginning, which was letting the love of God control you. And then, and then you start to use every, everything at your disposal from your, your deepest desires to everything that you, you have control over and you use it to love God. And so the culture is going to tell you, be authentic to yourself, and that's how you're going to be fulfilled. And I think what, what God would say is, it's not about being authentic to yourself, it's having authentic love for God. And you're going to find fulfillment. You're going to find satisfaction. You're going to find joy like you've never imagined. And many of you in this room can nod and say, yes, I know. That's true, because I've experienced it. I know that's true. And for some of you in this room, that's, that's still something that you have yet to experience in, 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 in any part of its fullness. And, and none of us have experienced it in its fullness. I can't wait for that day. Just a couple notes just to think about um, but in way of application here. I was thinking about, okay, how, does this, how should this influence our lives? Well, especially thinking about, you know, fulfillment. Um, let this change the way you think about dating, all right? Because the world's going to say, you need to find someone who completes you, right? Who fulfills you. You need to find someone who is going to give you joy and who you really connect with and, and someone ultimately who satisfies you. And, and part of the problem at the, at the deepest root of it is the culture sees especially sex and sexual fulfillment as like the end all of humanity. And that's part of the problem with, and that's why the gender thing has become such a massive problem. It's because sex and sexual fulfillment has become one and the same with the fulfillment of what we are as humanity. Well, let me just say, Jesus was never married. 
He never had any kind of sexual fulfillment. Was his life fulfilled and complete? Like, absolutely. And so we, we can't, I, I, we are tempted to look to a, a spouse for something that they just, they'll never be. And so even when you're dating, don't have exorbitant expectations for this person because at the end of the day, you were created to be fulfilled not by them, but by loving God. That's where fulfillment comes from. And I would just encourage you on another level or maybe a different sphere with your job, right, with your career. If you're stressed out about choosing a career, um, you, can, you can rest in peace because if you choose the wrong career, quote unquote, you can still have an incredibly fulfilling life serving God and loving him because your career is not what's going to ultimately fulfill you. I mean, look at the people who, who made it. Most of the people who made it in the biggest way we think of, you know, the stars, are incredibly unhappy because they got exactly what they thought they wanted and it's never been enough for them. And so we can, we can learn from that and we can learn from the scriptures and know, okay, we can put way too much weight into finding the right career. And so don't let that, don't, don't let that cripple you. There's so much hope for, for every single person, regardless of what career you're in. You can have one of the most joyful life possible. It has nothing to do with the job you use to make money or the job you don't get. Or maybe you are a stay-at-home mom and there's no job to give you fulfillment in the sense of what our culture says. So just a couple encouragements. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I have just a few discussion questions. All right, so let's pray together. Um, Lord, thank you for your word, and Lord, I thank you for the gospel and just how encouraging it is that we don't have to be perfect, that we don't have to do this in order to be accepted by you, but rather, Lord, you've loved us perfectly, and now you invite us to step into what we were created for. And Lord, you've even promised that while it won't fully happen in this life, it will one day happen. And so um, I thank you for that, Lord. I pray that you'd encourage the hearts of these students um, and, and the leaders in the room as well, Lord. Um, Lord, help us to cling to you and to your love. Help us to learn from you. Um, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, gather up with a couple people around you, um, and so yeah, whatever's comfortable, maybe three or four people, and we'll jump into these questions, and yeah, looks like there's a good, there's, people know more or less where you, you can jump in with. Feel free to talk to someone you don't know, that's okay, that's good actually. In fact, I would encourage you, if, you, if there's someone around you you don't know, please introduce yourself, that'd be really good. Um, so here's the questions. How have you seen our culture encourage people to be, quote-unquote, uh, authentic, and is it good or misleading? Do you tend to see love as primarily an emotion or as primarily a choice, and why is it important for love to include both? In what ways is your love for God authentic, and in what ways is it inauthentic or inconsistent? And, and this is one I would love for you guys to discuss. How do you think we can grow in our love for God? How can we encourage that and foster that? So go for it. We'll have a few minutes, and then we'll have uh, the band come back up.